0: Good morning everyone Scripture reading this morning comes to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 through 25 that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 through 25 Please stand for the reading of God's word Hear now the word of the Lord. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here and preach the word. As we worship together, uh, let's start with a prayer. Lord, give us understanding according to your wisdom. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, so that with all our being, we may worship you, as your scriptures are read and proclaimed. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. There was an interesting article uh, this past week. I don't know if you came you uh, came across it, but it was in the New York Times. And it was on July 8th, which is just a few days ago, and it was revised on July 10th. And this was the title of this New York Times article. Churches. So this is why this is relevant. It's talking about churches. So church, this is the title. Churches were eager to reopen. Now they are confronting coronavirus, coronavirus cases. So that's the title. Churches were eager to reopen. Now they are confronting coronavirus virus cases. So naturally, this would pique my interest, so I wanted to know what this was about. And so that's the heading. There is a subheading to this article, and the subheading is, the virus has infiltrated Sunday services, church meetings, and youth camps. More than 650 cases have been linked to religious facilities during the pandemic. Well, I was like whoa 650 that's crazy right and so want to read some more uh, and this is how the article starts out weeks after President Trump demanded that America's shuttered houses of worship be allowed to reopen new outbreaks of the coronavirus are surging through churches across the country where services have resumed the virus has infiltrated Sunday sermons meetings of ministers and Christian youth camps in Colorado and Missouri. It has struck churches that reopened cautiously with face masks and social distancing in the pews, as well as some that defied lockdowns and refused to heed new limits on numbers of worshipers. It sounds pretty terrible. And so this is why uh, you just keep on reading. I'm like, 650 cases, is that even a lot, though? I was just thinking, like, in the last when few weeks 650 cases and we're using uh words like infiltrated um which (laughs) um outbreaks right and so these are interesting interesting adjectives and adverbs they are using and so i was like wow churches are dying because they're opening and so you just go a little bit further and this is what the new york times article said More than 650 coronavirus cases have been linked to nearly 40 churches and religious events across the United States since the beginning of the pandemic. So there it is. Uh, So since the beginning of the pandemic, which is what? Like last year? Or is it from February or March? 650 cases? Hmm, It's, uh, it's just interesting. And then this is the words they use, with many of them erupting over the last month as Americans resume their pre-pandemic activities, according to a New York Times database. Now, the, now um, 650 cases over the course of the pandemic. So over the course of the recording of the pandemic, how many cases were there? 3.29 million, right? So 3.29 million cases are, have been reported since, positive cases have been reported since the beginning of this pandemic, and 650 corona cases are now of the 3.29 million are because of churches. And so I just thought this was an incredibly dishonest, very dishonest article with three authors with their names on it, uh, because you know, we like math, so 650 divided by 3.29 million is 0.019%. It's not 1.9%, it's 0.019%. That's like a 20th, a 25th, or something like that of a percent. Um, that's embarrassing. I, I don't know what else to say. And so, why are they printing articles like this? And I just, I just wondered. So you just continue to read the whole article, and I think this kind of gives it away, not only because uh, they started off with the first sentence weeks after President Trump, not only that part, but here in toward the bottom of that article, this is what they say. The outbreak has stoked resentment against the church from residents who believe that its members acted recklessly. So I think that's kind of the key that they're trying to show the outbreak has stoked resentment. Now, and now I was thinking, from who? Where, what counties are resenting churches for reopening? Do they have even an anecdote? So all, the whole article is just anecdotal evidence, meaning it's not numbers, but it's just, let's say this church, one person died, and this church, a few cases happened. And the highest number of cases was found in the northeast county in Oregon the highest number of cases where this is what they say. The, now the county has recorded 356 cases, many of them traced to the church. 356 cases, many of them traced to the church. And I was like, how many? What's many? It could be five. It could be 350, but it could be five. We don't know. But many of them apparently are traced back to the church. 356 cases, that must be a lot in Portland, right? Right? So I looked, uh, I'm sorry, in um, Oregon. So I looked, because this is the northeast side of Oregon right here, so I looked on the northwest side, which is where Portland is, and Portland has over 6,000. So they're reporting on 350 cases that have been reported in the northeast um, side of Oregon, but on just on the northwest side, there's over 6,000 cases in the area of Portland. I mean... I'm pretty sure it's not because of the churches in Portland that this has happened. They were doing something else in Portland the last few weeks, and it wasn't gathering in worship. And so when you continue to look at this, I found it kind of really intriguing and interesting because there are three authors. When you go all the way down, there are other contributors, contributors and researchers. And so there are 16 other contributors and researchers to this one article with very, very uh, shallow evidence, mostly anecdotal, or no evidence at all, just saying the churches are now linked to coronavirus outbreaks. And I was like, wow, this is not just dishonest, this is stoking, I think they're the ones stoking resentment to the church. And so, my plug is, if you want to know more about how to see politics, Pastor Paul is doing a Wednesday night study (laughs) called The Gathering Storm. Uh, But in all seriousness, um, I think it was uh, the great thinker by the name of Denzel Washington who said, uh, King Kong, no, that's not the right quote. It's another one. He said this, if you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. And so... That actually, when I saw that in an interview, has stayed with me over the last few years. If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. I do believe that there are forces against the church, and it's it's very very predominant. It's uh, it's a strong force against. So even and if you really do think about it, read the whole article. I gave you all the details to encourage you to actually look at it with a you know, with a lens that just looking at numbers and statistics, I would actually be pretty encouraged. Of the 3.29 million cases since the outbreak started, they could only trace back 650 to maybe, maybe the church. So I was like, wow, if anything, you would look at it and be like, God is good. God is good. And so you're, I'm pretty sure that with the 16 contributors and researchers, they're looking for every single instance they possibly can to pin any kind of outbreak to the church, and they came up with 650. We are in an age where we believe it's about left and right. So if I said the New York Times, there's already um, what do you call an opinion about it. You may like it, you may hate it, but you already have an opinion. I personally grew up reading the New York Times um, ever since elementary school. We had to read the New York Times even though we didn't understand it and circle the world's words that we didn't understand, look it up and come up with a current events report. That's how I grew up. And so this is something that is very familiar with me and I've seen the trend and the leaning of the New York Times change more and more rapidly to not The church, I should say. Anyway, but people these days think the primary division that we see in today's society is about left and right, or left versus right. And so even if we read an article like this, it forces you into a position. You either have to resent the church, or if you're part of the church, you have to defend the church. So you're like, It's me versus the New York Times, or in the New York Times versus me. But I don't think that's the right categorization. I don't think it's about left versus right. And I'm going to continue on to say that I don't think it ever was about left versus right. I think it has always been about right versus wrong. In the city of Corinth, two major themes and ideologies challenged the church, okay? And they are pretty similar to today, like the left-first-right dichotomy. On one hand, you had Greek philosophies who boasted some amazing thinkers, thinkers that have influenced even our nation of today, like Cicero, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle and people that you might have read in college or high school or even earlier. They were lovers of wisdom. And wisdom in the Greek is sophos, or this is where we get the name Sophia. Sophia means wisdom. And so we know that the people that love wisdom, there's a word for it. Lovers of wisdom. Love in the Greek is filio. And Wisdom is sophis or sophia, so when you put it together, we have the word philosophy. Philosophy is the lover of, lover of wisdom, and we have people that have been um, just really big, huge figures of this Greek intellectual movement. People like Socrates, around 400 BC, who would later be killed uh, for quote. Uh, corrupting the youth and introducing other like heresies or other gods. We have these kind of uh, ideologies that I've passed down, like the thinking and the critical analysis. These things are key. This is what makes you not just smart. It w- it's what makes you credible. And so that's why we have words like we're philosophizing, you know. Uh, we're pontificating. Of course, ponti- pontification comes from the word pontifex. And pont and fex from the Latin is where we get the word priest. But in, in all of this, we see that this has carried on. This kind of thinking and intellectual progress has carried on to even now when we got to around the 1800s, there was something that popped up called the documentary hypothesis. And the documentary hypothesis looked at... Um, The first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote, which is the Pentateuch, and you may be familiar with it if you went to, let's say, a religious course in undergrad, and you are 100% 100 familiar with this and studied this if you went to a seminary like I did in my seminary, a liberal seminary. And this documentary hypothesis is what we classically now know as uh, J-E-D-P. J-E-D-P is an acronym that just stands for J, the Yahwists, um, E, the Elohists, uh, D, the Deuteronomists, and P, the Priestly. Uh, they couldn't come up with the Istan on the last one. So. so it's the Yahwist, the Elohist, the Deuteronomist, and the Priestly. And so what they thought in their, uh, just, in their intellectual just um, boasting, they said, there's no way Moses wrote it. No one could have come up with such a sophisticated set of laws when Moses existed, which was pre-1000 BC. There is no way. There could have been no way. So you know who must have wrote it? And they came up with these theories. And it's called the documentary hypothesis when you put it together. And other groups wrote it, like the Yahwist is a group. So every time you see the word uh, Yehuvah or Jehovah, they would say, oh, the Yahwist must have wrote this part. And every time you saw the word Elohim or had something similar to that kind of writing, they would go, "Oh, the Elohis wrote that part." If there was a law, it's the Deuteronomist, and if there was something with the sacrifices or just anything with the priestly class, obviously the priests. And they were all done in different times, and they all put it together around Josiah's time. And Pastor Paul and I are very familiar with this because we had to study it and we were tested on it. Except. Um, There's no evidence for it. There's absolutely no evidence for it. And the only reasoning why people started to come up with these these things, challenging what the Bible would say, saying, oh, that's actually, in my critical analysis, I believe that multiple people have wrote this. By the way, that never happened for any other religious document. We don't go to any other religious documents, like maybe like 60,000 people wrote this over the course of the last 1,000 years. No one says that and so who wrote the works of uh plato plato i mean no one no one's going arguing like some other dude wrote it but for the bible that's what we teach and that's what scholars say is actual intellectual honesty just like they really believe in the new york times apparently these 19 people that outbreaks are happening in the church i mean i pray it doesn't i pray it doesn't happen in any church. But that's not just intellectual dishonesty—it's outright just an aggressive attack on the church that we see here in modern times. There's no way that Moses wrote this. It's too sophisticated. It's too great. Except, remember, this was this this uh, documentary hypothesis was was put together in the 1800s. Except in 1901. Uh, they found Hammurabi's code. Hammurabi's code is a set of laws that predates even Moses' time. So there goes that theory. I mean, whatever. And in the 1970s, non-Christian scholars, people were just saying, I'm a scholar for religious studies and I want to do this uh, for religion. Multiple scholars have come up with major criticisms in the 1970s of this documentary hypothesis, and they all said, this can't be true. It just doesn't make any sense. It's not cohesive. This criticism won't last. This is the 1970s, except these scholars couldn't agree on what would replace the documentary hypothesis. If you're listening, you will hear how insane this logic and reasoning is. They saw that this JEDP, like the Yahwist wrote this section, the LOS wrote this section, except... When they kind of combine, and you see Yahweh and Elohim in the same like, section, like who wrote it, it's like who knows, maybe they mixed it in. And they were just coming up with these theories on their own. In the 1970s, before many of you were born, except one person here, I think. Anyway, in the 1970s, major criticisms would come up. And it wasn't still replaced. It wasn't replaced because what they couldn't agree on was what would replace it. What could possibly replace this thing that had so many errors and was so obviously wrong? Here's a suggestion. How about actually believing Moses wrote it? Because in the Bible it says, Moses wrote it. Eh, you know, there, there's a suggestion. Might as well believe that. Deuteronomy 31, verse 24 says, When Moses had finished writing the words of the law in this book to the very end. And he tells the people, take this law, put it in the tabernacle, uh, put it in the Ark of the Covenant. And so what we saw here at this time was that the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel believe that God showed His right ways by showing this kind of power and it was done miraculously. Now all of this these things I'm going to start putting together and so that we understand the passage today. The law was given to them in a manner, and they believed in this, this miraculous and powerful manner. Remember when we did Exodus, it was, they had, Moses had to climb Mount Sinai, and there was this whole thing. If anybody got near the mountain, they would just die, and people were scared. When Moses came down, his face was so bright and illuminated. They said, Please cover your face. We don't want. There was a lot of miracles, and there was a lot of power around the giving of this law. And so the Jews also believed that the Messiah would show up in a similar manner. Miraculous signs were evidence that God was at work. Look what guided them through the wilderness. What guided the Israelites to the wilderness? A pillar of cloud by day that gave them shade and a pillar of fire that gave them night and warmth by night in the desert. And if you've never been to the desert before, in the daytime, it's past 100 degrees, um, it's so hot and dry that you don't know that you're sweating because it immediately evaporates. But all of a sudden, you're parched. You're like, I am so thirsty. My lips are cracking out of nowhere because it's so hot there. And then at night, it goes down below freezing, so the sand feels like you're just stepping on tiny particles of ice. That's how cold it gets at night. And yet when God led the Israelites through the wilderness for 40 years without fail, there was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That's power. That's what they believed. That's what the Jews believed because that's how they got the law. And now we're in Corinth. In Corinth, the church was split into two groups of philosophies or ideas or opinions. And mind you, this is all because, remember, Paul is getting at there is a division, a disunity in the church. And so there is a split into groups and sects inside the church, the Democrats and the Republicans. And even in today's church, it threatens to split the church across this country. They just couldn't sit together. They couldn't eat together. The other side was just so stupid, so ignorant, so dumb, they couldn't even say, I stand with you. They couldn't. These groups of philosophies are so at odds with each other. It's like, I can't believe you're a Democrat. I can't believe you're a Republican. And they they just wouldn't. The division was fierce and it was deep and it threatened to split the church for good. And this is what Paul is writing to. This is what he is addressing. And before we went through from verses 10 to 17, and verse 18 starts like this For the word of the cross is folly. Remember, he's addressing the church that is divided. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross. The word here is Lagos. And Lagos you may be familiar with because in John chapter 1, Lagos is a loaded word. Lagos Is saying in John chapter 1, verse 1, Lagos is in the beginning was the Lagos or the Word, right? In the beginning was the Lagos, and the Lagos was with God, and the Lagos was God. That's John chapter 1, verse 1. So it lagos is a loaded word, and this is how Paul starts in verse 18. For the Lagos of the cross is folly to those who are perishing it's foolishness to those who are perishing it's compared now because the, the verse 18 starts with the word for. you know that it's a continuation of an argument that he had presented before in verse 17 we see the plural form of lagos, which is logu. and and then so lagu is just a plural form and this is where it's translated in verse 17 Not with the words of eloquent wisdom. The lagu of eloquent wisdom. And so, not with the words of eloquent wisdom, but the word of the cross is where we get our truth. Where we get the truth. And he's saying the word of the cross is folly. This word is moriah. The Greek word spelled out is moriah this is where we get the word moron the cross is moronic to those who are perishing it's folly it's utter stupidity it's just so dumb i can't even talk to you dumb in around the first century to third century a.d there is a graffito uh, called um, it's 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 known as the Alexamenos Graffito. And it's, you see in this uh, piece of graffiti, uh, a body of a man with the head of a donkey crucified. And there's a man worshiping this body of a man with the head of a donkey crucified. There's a man outside of this cross uh, worshiping this, uh, this crucified figure. And the inscription says this, Alexamenos worships his god. Alexamenos worships his god. The word of the cross is utter folly to those who are perishing. It's stupidity to those that do not understand. In fact, if you go into 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 15, it says that we are now we the church We are the aroma of Christ to those that are saved and to those that are perishing. So to the world, we are the aroma of Christ. So to one section, the scent is horrific and unbearable. It's nasty. It's pungent. But to the other group, it is the fragrant aroma of our Savior and King. To us, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And when you look through this passage, there's a bunch of contrasts, folly, wisdom, weakness, power, and these themes will be constantly coming up. However, the contrast here that we see in the first verse isn't from folly to the wisdom of God. It's from folly to the power of God. You see, the logos of the cross the word of the cross isn't simply good advice. It's not just setting, a, uh, it's not giving us just a set of rules telling us what we should and shouldn't do. It's not telling us about the power of God either. The Logos of the cross is the power of God. And Paul further proves this point by quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14 For it is written, I will destroy. The wisdom of the wise. This is what God is saying. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the dis- discernment of the discerning I will thwart. If you just go a few chapters down from Isaiah chapter 29 or around Isaiah chapter 34, we see this Assyrian king who is conquering the whole world. No matter what God or philosophy they believed in, he was just decimating them. Utterly destroying them, putting the other gods and ideologies to shame. And then he gets to Israel. Hezekiah the king, right? He gets to the people of God in Judah. And he goes, you think you will stand, you tiny little pipsqueak of a country? I will just stomp on you and your God. And Hezekiah prays to God. And God answers him. I will destroy this guy's, Sennacherib's, wisdom, his counsel, his ways. And so when they surround uh, the people of God, God sends one angel, and with one angel, 185,000 soldiers are killed overnight. So the people that woke up, there's just like swaths of bodies just dead. And that's why I just think like when people uh, downplay angels, it's just weird. I mean, why do we keep on drawing them like babies and such? It's like it's just not—it's not the picture that we see in the Bible. And it's not like humans. It's not like we want like uh, wings and stuff. And you know, I mean, of course, there's a romantic way of being. Oh, you're my angel. However, in the Bible, if you call someone your angel, you might actually be killed. So who knows, like what we really want to call people? But in one swath. 185,000 people are dead and Sennacherib retreats. He's like, I, I have no one left. I have no one left. And so he goes away. What we've learned time and time again when we study history, especially in the Bible when we see it really detailed and laid out, is human wisdom has never solved any real problem. You know, with all our technological advances today. Has human wisdom solved any of our problems? People think racism is the big problem of today. Has human wisdom ever solved this problem? Will it solve this problem? And I would say every problem that we've had with every advance, with every intellectual learning, with every kind of wisdom that we could have attained, we still do it wrong. We still kill each other. There are still racist, There's are still sin. It's just that with technology now, we do it more comfortably. We just do it more comfortably from our phones or from our speakers or whatever it is. We just do it more comfortably, but the problem still exists, and it's just as bad. With all of philosophy, it could never solve any of humanity's deepest problems. Problems actually increase. What will solve our problems? And here Paul says the logos of the cross and this isn't anything new god's way was always and always stood in contrast with the ways of the world god's wisdom always stood in contrast with human wisdom in psalm 33 verse 10 the lord brings the counsel of the nation's To nothing. All your smart people, all your advisors, all the people that are full of wisdom, that people are like, wow, this guy is smart. This leader is amazing. I couldn't believe we finally got this wise and wonderful president, and now he's going to solve all our problems. But the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people in Psalm 33.10. In Proverbs There is this verse that says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. You know, this verse, exactly word for word, is repeated twice in Proverbs. Twice. Just in case you miss it the first time in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, here it is again in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in its end is the way to death. When faced with the power of God, man's wisdom will be utterly destroyed and this is where paul gets gets into his three rhetorical questions and you can see the emphasis and the rise of of his uh, vernacular when he goes where is the one who is wise where is the scribe where is the debater of this age in isaiah chapter 29 verse 12 it's where then are your wise men let them tell you that they might know what the lord of hosts has purposed against egypt no matter how many wise people you have you can't stand against god's plan and we saw egypt utterly destroyed with just 10 plagues by the hand of god this is to drive home the point in verse 19 Where is the sage? The person that you're like, oh, this person is so much full. This is a person chock full of good ideas. I love what they say. Their books, so insightful, you know. How to be you in 20 days. I don't know, whatever it is. And then the powerful or the scribes, people that knew the law, the people that could just recite the law to you and go brah and they tell you the powerful. What about the scholar or the expert? Where are these people when it comes to to saving you your salvation who is there that can give you that you know when paul says this perhaps the christians in corinth they may have tried to vie for public attention by trying to get their approval from popular philosophers like oh you know we're good to We're smart, too. The church is smart, too. You know, we can talk just like you can talk. And they may vying for public attention, too, and approval. But this is what Paul says. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Has not God made foolish the systems of the world? Every single piece of human wisdom, every single world system is rejected by God. It does not save. And yet people time and time again think the system of the world has to change. That's what's going to save me. The system of the world has to change. That's what's going to help me. I need this because that's what's going to help me. And that's why people continue to rage and they try to fight because they believe that if they, only if they control the system and they enact their own set of rules, they will survive. But these set of rules... Are in direct contradiction to God's. Verse 21: For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. There's a story in Acts, 7, Acts 17 where Paul was in Athens and he addresses the Areopagus. Areopagus is now classically known as Mars Hill. And these Areopagus, these people here, they were the elite in Athens. They were the smartest of the smart. They were, you, you, take, you take the brilliant and you take just 1%, that's who the Areopagus was. When you continue to read, and this is what I, um, what I encourage uh, some of our staffers, like why don't you read some of the Greek works and philosophies uh, back in the day. When you read like people like, Plato's works and, you know, even Aristotle or even Cicero, who really, once again, they really influenced our forefathers, like Thomas Jefferson and, um, you know, uh, I mean, most famously Hamilton, right? People saw it on Disney. But they really influenced their thinking. And when you read it, I honestly think, like, wow, these guys were so brilliant, they're much smarter than anybody here. Like the books I'm reading, contemporary books I'm reading now, they're just full of garbage. It's like they're not even cohesive. Logically, it doesn't make sense. Like who wrote this? feels like a fifth grader wrote this, and they just, they just published it because it just helps them with their own view. But these were the elite of the elite, Areopagus, right? Paul addresses, and he gets to address the smartest of the smart and remember these were people even from alexander the great's time that would come down and because of greek philosophy it was so predominant it was so pervasive it was so superior than any other ideology they could just out debate you and be like you think it's this but here's this 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 and be like ha socrates would just go around and be like you know what I'm just going to prove to you that you're just wrong and you don't know anything. That's basically what Socrates did. He just went around talking to every thinker, the great thinkers of the time, to show them that they actually know nothing. And he succeeded because they couldn't go against Socrates. These are the elite, right, in Athens. And Paul gets to address them. That's Acts 17. This is an incredible moment in church history. And he makes this incredible argument using reason And even referring and making reference to their gods and their poets. And then people are engaged, they're listening like, yeah, this guy definitely knows what he's talking about. He's intellectual, he's smart, and he's making a lot of sense until, it says, until he got to the cross, namely the resurrection. Once he got to the resurrection and saying that this was an actual historical event, Jesus rising again from the grave is an actual historical event, that's when it turned. In verse 32 of Acts 17, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They're like, this guy's an idiot. I thought he was smart. Some mocked. But others said, others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also, uh, whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. There are people that listen. It's like, okay, that makes sense. None of the stuff here solves. This actually makes sense. And this is after he, did, he does this in Athens. He goes across into the city of Corinth. As much wisdom as these people in the Areopagus held, they did not and they could not know God. In fact, when he was, when Paul was in the Areopagus, what did he point to? Didn't he point to a statue made out to the unknown God? And that basically was Socrates' argument. He would go around saying, you know what, I am wiser than this man because It's likely that either of of us doesn't know anything worthwhile, but he thinks he knows something where, as I know, I don't know anything. So that's why I'm wiser than him. This Socrates' argument. But he may have known more than those that he debated. Socrates may have destroyed, you know, those that he debated, but it was to prove that he knew nothing. Socrates' whole point was, I know nothing. What do you know? It's like, well, I know this to be true. And he proved that you actually didn't know anything about it. And so you know nothing too. So I'm wiser than you because I know that I know nothing, whereas you know nothing and you think you know something. But the whole point, what's the point of that? The point is they still don't know anything. They both don't know anything, let alone God. So here's the statue that says, to the unknown God. And Paul points to that. You actually have a statue saying, you don't know this God, and let me tell you who that God is. No amount of wisdom and knowledge brought you close to God. No amount of intellectual progress, no amount of study, no amount of, wow, I actually have a high IQ, brought you closer to God. So we see God used what people thought to be foolishness, even moronic. To save them. That was what was preached, and some of the Areopagus joined Paul. In verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is my life verse. This is a a verse that has affected me in a great many ways as in my studies and in my journey to become a pastor. There are those that would listen to my sermons, and they, they would say, uh, you kind of say the same thing every week, huh? <laughs> I don't know they would say that. And some folk even would go to an elder of ours and say, Pew just preaches the gospel every week, huh? Like it was a bad thing. And here it is. There is division right here. Here is the left versus right. The Jews versus the Greeks. This division. And remember, Paul is addressing the church, the church's division, and the lack of unity in, this, in these first few chapters, up until chapter four. And he led them to, and, and I could go on. If you continue to study Greek philosophy, if you continue to study like um, the Jewish writings, like the Midrash and things like that, you see that this is actually in, incredibly and entirely true. Uh, it led them to either be sexually immoral, all these philosophies, uh, you would see like homosexuality was just, just a thing. It's like a thing that you do. An older man would just solicit a younger, younger, like a, a child almost, and that would just be a thing. It was part of their wisdom. It was part of their philosophy, and that's what made sense. Or you would turn into ascetics, and that would be you would deny any pleasure, any kind of sensual pleasure you have to deny, right? And they thought the people that would deny, they thought that denial through denial, they would be able to achieve power, spirituality. You know, if I fast, like my spiritual level goes up like two points, right? And that's what they believe. After all, if you can control your own body, isn't it because you can control your own mind? And if, at the very least, even if you fully can't control your mind, wouldn't it come a little bit after you control your own body? I so why even people today, we see forms of asceticism, like these hardcore diets and exercise regimes like even in buddhist thinking and other philosophies so the focus is on fasting prayer keeping the calendar schedule abstention of certain foods clothing and even marriage right and that itself would lead to boasting look at me you know look at me so powerful so what do you seek is it power is it the signs Is that what you want when you come into a religious ceremony or service? Is that what you seek? That's what the Jews demanded of Jesus in which he responded that the only sign that they would receive would be the sign of Jonah. That means he was going to die and in three days he was going to rise again. And there was no way the Jews were going to believe that the Messiah, the chosen one of God, would come down here to this earth just to be crucified. The one hung on a tree is cursed. It says that in the Bible, the Bible that they memorized, that they were reciting is cursed. And the word here, stumbling block, is from the word scandalon. Scandalon is where we get the word scandalous. It's not only absurd that the Messiah would die on a tree, it's outright scandalous to even think about it. You can't even think about stuff like that. It's unthinkable to the Jew that the Messiah would be hung on a tree. Something truly despicable in the sight of all Jews. Their pride was in the surety of what kind of glory the Messiah would display when he came on this earth. Do you remember the powers that were displayed by God when they led them out of Egypt? When they saved even from Sennacherib, like the 185,000 just wiped out? Do you remember that kind of power? And the Messiah would come, like go in the city on a donkey and then die on a tree like some common criminal? That was despicable to even think about like that. Because is what you seek power? So, what do you seek? Is it wisdom? The knowledge of the world? To be intellectual? to be respected in the circles of our intellectual society. This, in fact, was what the Athenians were doing when Paul got to Areopagus, or Paul got to the Areopagus. In Acts 17, verse 21, it says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. All they would do is pontificate. They loved the fact that they knew something that someone else didn't. If I got to tell you something that you didn't, it made me feel really good, and the person that I told it to would give me this kind of honor and respect. The most honored among all of them were the ones that knew the most, the outstanding thinkers of their time. Their pride was in their intellectual acuteness. And I was thinking about this. and uh, it's, like, it's like there is the perfect steak. It's almost lunchtime. So it's like there is this perfect steak. And the Jews would train themselves to gag at the smell of steak. The Greeks would just fill themselves with gummy bears. So by the time the steak is ready, you're not hungry at all. He's like, I'm not hungry. I don't need that steak. And however, the one that is saved can enjoy that steak. Both had pride in their confidence of their knowledge of God. Both had confidence that they knew the way to God. But that's not what they got. They were far from it. And it says here, But we preach Christ crucified. It is a byword to the Jews and utterly moronic to the Greeks. But to those that are called by God, whether you're a Jew or a Greek... Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified. Crucified is a perfect participle. It's sh- to show the the permanent efficacy of the crucifixion. All of mankind, whether you're a Jew or Greek, where you, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, you would reject Christ except for those that are called. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, it says, And to those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's what it means when he says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is why we call this calling the effectual call. This, is, this means that those whom God calls are changed. They are brought from death to life from death to life, now you can actually smell the aroma. The aroma is great and it's good. And you're like, wow, I'm hungry. Let's go. This is the power of God. At first, the power of sin had defeated you and you were dead in your trespasses. But now there is a new power, a new power of the cross of Christ that is at work within us. Power is used in conjunction with wisdom here. So people put Uh, Their emphasis on their own intellect couldn't save themselves. They put their emphasis on their own power couldn't save themselves. However, the power of the cross has opened up a way to even the most intellectually capable of philosophers they couldn't have imagined and offered this salvation to even the lowliest and humble of people. That's another way of me saying even the low IQs, even the people that the world thinks are dumb. God gives them salvation to make foolish those that think they are smart. This is why Paul is able to conclude with, for the foolishness of God. Now, the actual literal Greek word spelled out letter for letter is moron. It really is moron. For the moron of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Foolishness, the moron of God is wiser than anyone, and the weakness of God is stronger than anyone. This is why Leon Morris would go on to write, The sign-seeking Jews were blind to the significance of the greatest sign of all when it was before them. The wisdom-loving Greeks could not discern the most profound wisdom of all when they were confronted with it. The irony is that the world will see the gospel as moronic and weak We are saved by someone who died on a tree but the message of the cross that was given to us is this it's not by our own strength and it is not by our own wisdom that we are saved and God chose to use the foolish things of the world to shame those who were wise and strong in their own eyes but he did it and he made it work and it is true We are saved by the logos of the cross. God has saved his people. And this is what we believe. This is the kerygma or the message of the cross. This is what's been given to us. And I'm going to be the one to admit that I am not as strong as the Jews were in their beliefs. They were insane. The asceticism is insane. Like They were disciplined to the T. Like They were good. And I'm not as wise as the Greeks. I couldn't pontificate all day and night, 24-7, for years and years and years, for hundreds of years, bringing it down. But it still couldn't save them. But God has saved us. And this is why this is such an incredible message that we can be unified. Why is it that we tend to go to the left in politics or to the right? In politics what does that even mean but to the Christian we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God this is how Paul starts this is an incredible journey he's going to take to Corinthians in this letter And I'm so excited to do that with you but this is what we also must start with we start with Christ crucified we start with the logos of the cross and we know that it is because of that we are saved you know when the word is preached when you are saved that fragrance that scent that aroma is enticing it's beautiful it's awesome do you know why Don't you see that's evidence that God has saved you? It wouldn't make sense otherwise. This wouldn't intrigue you at all. We would go, forget this, and if you want wisdom, we could read the apology uh, that Plato wrote of Socrates. We could just do, you know, whatever it is. Or we could go and look for signs and miracles or power, technology, whatever it is there. But that's not what intrigues us. That's not what excites those that are saved. We know those things are bankrupt. And what we have now is the power and the wisdom of God. Praise be to God. He truly is an awesome and amazing God. He is the Lord that has given us salvation that we could have never attained otherwise. And so we bless his name. Let's pray. Lord, even today we are tempted and we are uh, pushed into thinking that we must follow the ways of the world, Maybe, maybe just a little bit, maybe just even a little bit. However, God, you show us that we are to follow you. If we are to preach, we are to preach Christ crucified. I pray, God, that you would encourage your church, especially during this time, especially during this dark season, that wherever we are, And whomever we are seeing or speaking to, that we would be able to be people who preach Christ crucified. For Lord God, we know that it is through you and through you alone that there is salvation. Let's take this time to pray and admit perhaps in your heart or in your life in recent days, there has been a temptation for you to follow the ways of the world, the movements of the world, the social movements of the world, the social thinking of the world, who knows, whatever it is, and take this time to repent. There, has, there is perhaps even a thing that made me think that, um, you know, it's about how much power I have, what I can affect and change. Let's take this time to confess to the Lord that it is not by our own power or wisdom, but it is through the wisdom and power of God that we are saved. And let's live accordingly by preaching exactly that, by preaching Christ crucified. Let's take this time to pray.